Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Let's talk allergies. I moved here almost six years ago, and I never had allergies. After being here in Louisville for just a year, bam, allergies. I was allergic to tree group one and possibly my dog and definitely my pet rats. This is somewhat normal, though. Humans get new allergies throughout their life or lose allergies. So researchers have found a new mechanism in which an antibody can prevent allergic reactions in a broad range of patients. So this has implications for helping a lot of sufferers of allergies. So I want to explain antibodies and allergies a little before we get into this new research. First, antibodies are what our body uses to fight off infections. We have a few different types. They function in different areas of the body and on different types of pathogens. Scientists call antibodies immunoglobulins, or Ig for short. Each one gets a different letter designation. So we have IgAs, IgMs, IgD, G, and E. In school, I remember the one that was associated with allergies, IgE, because of allergy. It's actually responsible for your body's ability to fight off infections with worms. Those in first world countries don't have to deal with worm infections, but we do have to deal with allergies. Whereas those in countries that still do get worm infections, they don't get allergies. And that's not a coincidence. Because, well, IgE doesn't have anything to do in the body. It's trying to be productive and fight off worm infections, but there's no worms. So it ends up reacting incorrectly to pollens or other antigens like cat saliva The individual particles that this IgE antibody is responding to to cause allergies are what we call allergens. And so the type of reaction that you have with an allergy is exactly what you would see as a way to fight off infection of the worm. The way our body would fight a worm is a lot different than how it would fight a bacteria or a virus, which is very small and usually inside the cell, whereas worms are very large and outside of the cell. So, the IgE antibody causes release of histamines, and histamines are what would, in a normal infection with a worm, go on to attack and kill the worm. So now getting to the new research. As I had mentioned, our body uses antibodies as a way to defend against invading pathogens. But what this group is actually wanting to do is use an antibody to fight off our allergy antibodies, those IgEs. So they've discovered and characterized an antibody that binds the antibodies responsible for allergies and prevent them from functioning. So in humans, this means we'd be preventing the allergic response from ever happening. However, this actually hasn't been tested in humans yet, so we're still quite a ways off from this being a functional drug. But what we do know is if we take blood from individual sufferers of allergies and treat them with this new drug, it prevents the IgE, the allergy-causing antibody, from communicating to other cells. I want to talk for a few minutes about sleep. You know, the recommended minimum amount of sleep that we need every night is seven hours. 
And Kentucky, although we're known for a lot of different things, one of the things we're distinctive for is a lack of sleep. Something like 40% of adults living in Kentucky are not getting that minimum recommended seven hours of sleep every night. Other states are doing a lot better, like Kansas and Oregon. There are about 25% more people there who are getting adequate sleep compared to us. Now, sleep is very important for our overall health. It's essential for maintaining a healthy immune system. It's very important for energy conservation. And it's also the time when memory consolidation occurs. And memory consolidation is what's important for mental performance and our emotional health. I want to tell you today about a pair of evolutionary biologists who just published a paper where they looked at the sleep patterns of 30 different primate species. So they compared the sleep habits of primates like chimpanzees, baboons, lemurs, macaques, marmosets, squirrel monkeys, etc. And they compared those primates with our favorite primates, the human. Now these researchers actually didn't measure sleep patterns in these different animals directly. They used data that had already been collected by other researchers. These other researchers had examined sleep patterns in these different primates that were living in captivity, like in the zoo or, or other situations like that. They needed to do this because they wired up the animals to measure their heart rates, brain waves, and things like that. But these researchers argue that it's okay to make assumptions about sleep patterns measured in animals that were in captivity because they claim that animal sleep patterns don't really change across environments. And one example they give for that are humans ourselves. No matter what part of the planet humans live, whether they live in the city or the country, whether they're hunting-gathering societies, They all sleep about the same amount of hours, about seven hours a night. Now, one of the interesting things about this project is that they gathered all this data about how long animals sleep and what's going on in their brain during that time. And they use that data to make predictions about how long an animal actually should be sleeping every night. In addition to examining their specific sleep patterns, they also looked at the behavioral patterns of these animals. Do they live in groups or do they are they solitary? Do they live in trees or on the ground? What type of food do they eat, etc.? I'll bring up a couple uh, extreme examples. Elephants, for instance. Elephants only sleep two hours a day. It's thought that's because they're so big. They have to spend a lot of time foraging food. They travel long distances, always in searching for food. But they really can't run very fast, so they can't really escape from predators very well. And so the belief is that they stay awake a lot. They only sleep two hours a night because they need to keep an eye out for predators. On the other end of the scale, there's bats. Bats who fly at night and primarily eat insects they can sleep as much as 20 hours a day. Now, two of the important parameters that these researchers were interested in among these 30 different primates was the sleeping time. How many hours are they in sleep every night? And then REM, rapid eye movement. REM is important because that's when our sleep is the deepest. That's when typically we're having very vivid dreams. And researchers can actually measure the REM period, the rapid eye movement period, because there's a lot of brain activity, even though we're very deeply in sleep. Let me tell you about some of the other parameters they looked at in these 30 primates. Diet, what did they eat? Basically, it's been observed that foliovores, these are animals that primarily eat leaves, 
they tend to have less REM sleep. But they also classified the primates on whether they were insect eaters or seed eaters or fruit eaters or, of course, whether they were omnivores or not. They also looked at body mass. The larger the body, the more time spent foraging for food, and therefore they're probably not sleeping. How far these animals travel every day in nature? Because the more they travel, the less likely they're going to be sleeping. So that's what's going on with elephants. Another trait they looked at was where the animal sleeps. Now, primates that primarily live and sleep in trees, they tend to get longer sleep every night because they're more protected from predators up there. But primates that sleep on the ground, and that would include humans, they're likely to sleep less because they're more vulnerable to predators. They need to stay awake longer to keep an eye out for their safety. But the reason they probably sleep on the ground might be to run away faster, especially with humans with our two legs, we can run very fast. They looked at group size. Basically, the larger numbers a pack of animals are, the more likely they're going to sleep longer because there's safety in numbers. And there's the question of whether the animals are nocturnal, where they're feeding at night, or whether they're more active in the daytime. Basically, animals that are active in the daytime tend to get lower amounts of sleep, whereas animals that are nocturnal, where they're feeding more at nighttime, they tend to get quite a bit of sleep. Two additional observations about these nocturnal primates. They tend to not sleep in very large groups. Sometimes they even sleep alone. And they tend to pick areas to sleep that are very hidden, very isolated because they're so vulnerable all day. The other thing that's been observed about nocturnal animals is that they not only sleep all during the sunny hours of the day period, but they also sleep through the dusk and the dawn. So they really only come out to forage very late at night in the very darkest, deepest times of the evening. And another parameter they looked at is what's called sexual dimorphism. Sexual dimorphism is the differences between male and female other than the sex organs. So it's believed the more sexually dimorphic a species is, the less sleep they're going to get because they're spending more time competing for a mate. So these researchers looked at all these different parameters, and there's others I didn't even mention. And what they tried to do was predict how long each one of these primate species should be sleeping. And for humans, they concluded that we should be sleeping nine and a half hours for every 24-hour period. Nine and a half hours. Boy, that seems a little long for me. But when I look into it, the National Sleep Foundation suggests that adults should be getting seven to nine hours of sleep every 24-hour period. They recommend children get between 10 and 14 hours per daily period. And so although nine and a half hours seems a little long, it might not be totally unrealistic. So these researchers predicted, based on behavior and biology of these different 30 primate species, and they made predictions about how long each of them should be sleeping. Like I mentioned, in humans, it's supposed to be 9.5 hours. And then they wanted to test what do these animals actually sleep. And again, these are animals in captivity, but it's believed that it's not that much different from how they would be sleeping in the wild. And there's quite a range in sleeping patterns. Chimpanzees and baboons only got about 10 hours of sleep every 24-hour period. The longest sleeper was the three-striped night monkey, which slept for 17 hours every 24-hour period. It's because they're nocturnal animals. Humans were at the bottom of the list. We got the shortest amount of sleep compared to any other primate, seven hours. 
seven hours of sleep. And this matches pretty well with other surveys and research studies about sleep patterns of people. Most of us are getting seven hours of sleep. So they made predictions about how much sleep each primate should be getting and then how much they actually do get. And the biggest outlier, the one species that differed the most between what they actually got in sleep and how much they should be getting, was us people. Another way that humans were different than the other primates was the amount of REM sleep, the rapid eye movement. Remember, this is when you're in your deepest sleep, where you often have very vivid dreams. We're getting about 1.5 hours a night in REM sleep, and this is more than most of the other primates. The only other primates that got more REM sleep than we do are the ones that are sleeping, like the nocturnal animals, the ones that are sleeping really long time. So we're the winners when it comes to REM sleep. And this is important. This this might be one of the reasons humans are so successful is the amount of REM sleep we get. It's very important for consolidating our memories from the previous day. It's very important for maintaining healthy emotions and for our ability to develop insights or deeper understandings of people or things. And another important thing happens during REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep. It's where we experience threat rehearsal. Threat rehearsal are those bad dreams you have, nightmares, where you're running away from something or you're being threatened by something or another. It's believed that this is a type of rehearsal for us so that when we're faced with traumatic experiences in real life, we're able to deal with it better because we rehearsed it in our REM sleep. Now, the bad thing about REM sleep, though, is that it reduces what they call vigilance. You know, when you're in that deep, deep sleep, you're less attuned to your outside environment. And so we're very vulnerable to predators at that time. So animals that are going through long REM sleep periods are really much more vulnerable to outside threats than those that have shorter REM periods. So humans are real outliers. We get less sleep than we should compared to all the other primates they looked at. And we get more relative REM sleep than the other animals. Towards the end of their paper, the research speculate about why humans are such outliers. How come we're getting so little sleep? How come we spend so much time in REM sleep? And it's thought that maybe there's evolutionary advantage to it. The less time we spend sleeping, the more time we have for productive activities like learning new skills, inventing things, attaining new knowledge, teaching our allies and teaching our spouses and children. And that high risk of REM sleep maybe is helping us with things like memory consolidation, threat rehearsal, and enhancing our emotional well-being, our ability to understand complex ideas. So maybe the less sleep that we get has an evolutionary advantage. The authors also take a little time out and mention Alzheimer's disease. None of the other primates apparently are susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. And these authors speculate that maybe our unusual sleeping patterns are making us more vulnerable to Alzheimer's. So the take-home message from this paper for me was, uh, yeah, maybe there are some evolutionary advantages to getting very little sleep compared to other primates and having all that REM sleep. But on the other hand, it seems like we're really pushing our luck when it comes to sleep. We're really supposed to be getting nine and a half hours of sleep. And and many of us, including myself, are getting six hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, less than that even. We're really putting ourselves at risk when we get that little sleep. Our bodies just aren't designed for that. 
our immune system is weaker, our mental capacities are reduced, our emotional well-being is threatened. And so that reading this article was very helpful for me. It was a real wake-up call to try to get more hours of sleep every night. I have some bad news for the caffeine lovers out there who may also be at risk for developing Alzheimer's. Once Alzheimer's symptoms develop, caffeine may actually worsen the symptoms of it. This is opposite to what is known about how caffeine may help prevent dementia. These researchers previously demonstrated that the action of caffeine blocking the adenosine receptors causes adverse effects in those with dementia. And this new study, published in Frontiers in Pharmacology, uses a mouse model of dementia to study the effects of caffeine intake. Now, mice obviously aren't humans, but this kind of study would take years in humans and would require risking the mental health of individuals by having those with dementia consume caffeine daily. In this mouse model, the mice have a type of familial neurogenitive disorder similar to that of Alzheimer's. They have aggregation in the brain of the same tau protein that rather than being in a healthy, long, filamentous form, gets tangled up into aggregates. And this can be visualized in the brain tissue and is known as tau pathology. These mice also have amyloid beta peptides that are crucial to Alzheimer's that when they misfold, they cause the other proteins like them to misfold and form these amyloid plaques that can be found in the brains of those with Alzheimer's. So the mice that showed signs of neurodegenerative disorder consumed the human equivalent of three cups of coffee a day. Then they examined them for their side effects. They ended up showing signs of neophobia, which is the fear of everything new. They had anxiety-related behaviors and had less emotional and cognitive flexibility. So none of those cognitive benefits of caffeine that help healthy individuals helped these mice. So while caffeine can provide you a cognitive benefit while you're healthy, if you develop a neurogenitive disorder, you should probably lay off the caffeine. So actually, the dose of caffeine that the mice got, did, I wonder how that would be interpreted with our body weight. How much caffeine would that be? So they measured the amount of caffeine um, that's equivalent to three cups of coffee in humans in the blood. Oh, that's right. And they then, yeah, they, they yeah. translated that into the, the volume of blood in a mouse and then um, dosed them accordingly and just would put this caffeine in their um, water supply. And then they can check that um, and measure that they're getting the same amounts uh, in the blood. Now, what the time period was, how, how long were the mice treated? So they started um, from adulthood for the mice, which is about six months of age. And they continued until they were middle age, which is about 13 months of age. Oh, a long period then. Yeah. So this is a really long time frame, which, you know, you were to look at in the equivalent of humans would definitely be years and years and, and very difficult to study or track if you were looking at a natural population. Of course, Alzheimer's is something I associate with older people. I wonder, the mice weren't really old age, though. Yeah, they started kind of more in adulthood. It wasn't elderly. But we do see, you know, the onset of these symptoms, you know, early in people. And usually they take a while to start to get really bad. And that's usually when they're older, you know, much yeah. older. So you wonder, is, is, would caffeine be even worse in older people yeah, the, probably. I think near the end of the age of the mouse, for instance. Yeah, probably the more progressed your disease is, the, the worse the caffeine is going to be for you than early on. Yeah, because I'm such a caffeine addict, it has me worried. <laughs> well, right now it's good, I guess. Right for now, it helps you stave off dementia. But as soon as you you start to develop dementia, you got to stop your caffeine. Yeah, you know, hopefully, don't make it worse. Do physicians have a way to categorize dementia so that you know when you're at that point? 
Uh, yeah, you have, there's different stages of it and there's um, signs along the way to grade how progressed you are. Um, so usually people don't get um, diagnosed or in the early stages because they don't kind of realize the symptoms unless you know and kind of expect that you, this may happen to you based on your family history. Yeah, those tau proteins accumulate in the brain. Of course, caffeine's a neurologically active chemical. I wonder about other alkaloids like nicotine. Yeah, I wonder if they have, um, what effects they may have. have something affect those tau proteins also. That's a good question. It's scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much we don't know right now about Alzheimer's, especially because we know nothing about how to stop it or prevent it or slow it, um, which is really unfortunate. So just the more we understand about um, what can trigger this or what can exasperate the symptoms, I think is, is helpful for those living um, with individuals that are affected by this disease. Watch out, there's diamonds falling from the sky. In October of 2008, an asteroid entered the Earth's atmosphere. This asteroid is now called 2008-2C3. Now, scientists think that this asteroid was about 13 feet in diameter. And if you know anything about asteroids, you know that they tend to be larger than that. In fact, some asteroids can be like small planets, hundreds of miles in diameter. But at 13 feet, this rock still qualifies as an asteroid. If it was smaller than that, it would be called a meteoroid. And if it was smaller than that, it would be called a meteorite. So anyway, this 13-foot rock, this asteroid, broke up in the Earth's atmosphere about 23 miles above the Earth's surface, and it broke up into a lot of smaller pieces that fell into Sudan in Africa. Scientists there were able to gather up about 50 different fragments of this asteroid, the largest one being about 4 inches in diameter. And for the past 10 years, a group of planetary scientists based in Europe have been studying these fragments studying them both at the chemical level, but also at the anatomical level, using transmission electron microscopes, very high-power microscopes. And guess what they found in these space rocks using these high-power microscopes? Diamonds! It's actually not the first time that diamonds have been found in meteorites or, or broken-up asteroids. It's pretty common, apparently, when an asteroid has very high levels of carbon. It's hard to think of something as beautiful and rare as a diamond as being just made out of carbon. Of course, us human beings are mostly made out of carbon with a whole bunch of water thrown in, and we're quite beautiful and rare. Now, these crystalline carbon structures, these diamonds that they found in the space rocks, are very small, less than a thousandth of a meter. And they're usually referred to as nanodiamonds because they're measured in nanometers. So don't go running to your local jewelry store asking for jewelry to be made out of space diamonds. They're just too small. Another interesting type of carbon they found in these space rocks were amino acids. This is pretty intriguing because amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And proteins are really what is a defining molecule found in living organisms. So this question of how amino acids got in these fragments of rocks from an asteroid is a very exciting question, and maybe that's something we can discuss at another show. Planetary scientists think there's three possible ways that diamonds could be created. One is from shock waves produced by high-energy impacts in space. Two, deposition by chemical vapor. Or three, diamond formation due to high pressures building up at the interior of a larger planet. That's how diamonds are formed here on Earth. 
So when these researchers examined these particular space rocks, they noticed very small inclusions inside the rocks. And these inclusions were minerals like phosphate, iron, and nickel. These inclusions are very similar to what's seen in earthly diamonds. And so the researchers concluded that the space nanodiamonds probably formed inside of some type of larger planetary object. Okay, so since they know how much pressure is required for formation of these kinds of diamonds, they can predict how big the planetary object has to be to get that kind of diamond formation. Because the bigger the planet, the higher the amount of pressure you get. So after making the appropriate calculations, these researchers concluded that the original planetary object that these rocks come from was a planet somewhere between the size of Mercury and Mars. Mercury and Mars are our two smallest planets within the solar system, so it looks like these nanodiamonds were formed inside of a planet that's about half the size of the Earth. Astronomers think that our solar system was populated by a lot of these planets in the first 10 million years in the history of the solar system. They're called planetary embryos. Our solar system is estimated to be 4.6 billion years old, so the first 10 million years is really a pretty short period right after formation. I made some crude calculations, and it looks like if a person lived to be 80 years old, this would be similar to the first six days of that person's life right after birth. So it's a pretty quick period in the history of the solar system. This is probably how we got the moon. Some runaway planetary embryo ran into the Earth, pushed up a bunch of the Earth material into outer space, but kept within the orbit of the planet. And then gravity caused all this material to coalesce together to form this sphere that we now call the moon. Now, most of these planetary embryos are gone. They were either destroyed by colliding with each other. They might have been jettisoned out of the solar system. They might have collided with the sun. Or they could have went on to fuse together to form the larger planets that we still see in the solar system, like Saturn and Jupiter. The researchers conclude that the planetary embryo that gave rise to these rocks that hit Sudan back in 2008 it's probably gone. It was probably destroyed by some sort of a collision in the first 10 million years. So the next time you look up at the night sky and see all those dazzling stars and you think about how they remind you of diamonds, remember, there are nano diamonds up there. Hey, here's some neat research coming out of the Netherlands. It was a paper published in May of 2018 in the journal called Nature Chemical Biology. What these scientists did was use computer modeling to modify an existing enzyme and giving it a new catalytic property. Now, this is different than the traditional method of altering enzymes, which is using a method called directed evolution. And directed evolution involves starting off with an existing enzyme and naturally altering it to carry out new chemical reactions. One of the problems with directed evolution is that it's very slow. So these researchers adapted this computer modeling technique to first predict a handful of possible chemical structures on the computer first, and then test them individually. They started off with an enzyme called aspartase, then they modified that protein to carry out a completely new reaction. It's an asymmetric hydroamination reaction, which is something it wasn't able to do before. And then once they achieved that, 
they had colleagues in China who were able to produce large quantity of this completely new enzyme in their laboratories, that indicates that you can scale up this technique in order to do large-scale industrial production. This is pretty important research because it means it's going to be easier in the future to create entirely new enzymes to carry out chemical reactions that haven't been possible in nature before. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at forwardradio.org.